Hi, I'm Emily Abbott, the founder of The Brain Possible. We've created this space, our website, and this podcast to offer hope, to explore possibility over limitations, and to create community for families of exceptional children like yours. This is personal to me. I know firsthand that great change cannot come from a place of hopelessness. My son Carter's life taught me to run full steam ahead in the opposite direction of limitations and never to be. In this work, we know we are not providing one specific solution to one specific problem. We're doing something more, moving toward a transformation of spirit. And we try to spread that message one connection at a time. Here, on this podcast, we'll begin another. We're so happy that you're taking this journey with us. Today on the Brain Possible podcast, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. James Greenblatt, a pioneer in the field of integrative medicine. Dr. Greenblatt has treated patients since 1988. Specifically, Dr. Greenblatt has seen thousands of children and adults struggling with symptoms of ADHD, hyperactivity, inattentiveness, impulsiveness, and often irritability and combativeness. Rather than simply prescribing medication for their ADHD symptoms, he tailors remedies to his patients' individual needs, detecting and treating the underlying causes of the condition. In his book, Finally Focused, He provides proven natural and medical methods to treat such problems as nutritional deficiencies or excesses, dysbiosis, a microbial imbalance inside the body, sleeping difficulties, and food allergies, all of which surprisingly can cause or worsen the symptoms of ADHD. Using Dr. Greenblatt's expert advice, millions of children and adults with ADHD finally can get the help they need to achieve true wellness. Let's get ready to talk about some of that advice and a lot more. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Greenblatt. I always like to start with the why. How did you first get interested in ADHD in your career? Well, you know, I was um, trained as a child psychiatrist. So after my fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry, uh, I went into practice and uh, most of the day was filled with parents um, bringing their children for the treatment of ADHD. So very quickly um, after um, opening my practice, I got to see a lot and I realized that the time stimulants were the only treatment model and I wanted to look for um, other alternatives. Yeah. What year was that when you started? A long time ago, about 35 (laughs) years ago. So I think it was probably 1990 um, when I uh, first um, got out of training and opened a practice. And that was still really, you know, you were seeing a lot of kids come through with ADHD. Back then it was ADD, right? And ADHD separate? Back then, yeah, we had the two ADD, um, you know, and then ADHD. Yes. Okay, so is this rise due to better testing and detection or due to more toxicity, uh, more processed foods, more stressors, or a combination of all? I think it's, yeah, all the above. I mean, I think um, our 
diet uh, has changed pretty dramatically, you know, over the 50 years. And, and we know that, um, you know, sugar consumption increases the, uh, the rate of ADHD, but also the, the toxins from copper to lead. Um, you know, the Flint, Michigan crisis was just a small example that's happening all over the country. So environmental changes, dietary changes, um, genetics, and just the, um, our kind of screen uh, addiction as a culture kind of shifts attention to these very short periods. And mm -hmm. um, that certainly hasn't helped. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed your chapter. Was it a whole chapter uh, on sugar <laughs> and all the things that sugar does? Because it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, because everywhere you turn, it seems like kids are being offered sugar. And people think it seems like people think that that is a good way to get make people happy. They finished a race. Let's give them sugar. Uh, they're being good in class. Let's give them sugar and on and on and on. Yeah. You know, when I first started, it was quite clear to me and, and many parents that that sugar or, uh, you know, made some of the kids worse, but there was not the research to support it in the 1980s. Um, but over the past 30 years, we now have a large body of scientific research that points to so many soft drinks per day would increase rates of ADHD and behavior problems. So not only is it obvious to most parents, but the research is quite clear that refined sugar does affect behavior. Mm -hmm. And um, would you say, I don't want to go too far down this road, but uh, would you say that artificial food dyes and ingredients also contribute to some behavior issues? Well, uh, it's a really good question that science has also figured out over the past um, 20 years. Um, there used to be a group, you know, the Feingold group, I guess, is still around where food additives and food dyes, they believe caused ADHD. And then the pediatricians did research early on and said, no, it didn't. And I think what has uh, come about is that there's a subset of individuals that appear to be genetic that do um, have behavioral um, problems associated with the ingestion of some of these food dyes and food additives. So it's not everybody, it's a subset. So it's a matter of just, you know, testing your child, um, seeing how they do off some of these dyes and the fine gold, you know, program makes uh, easy access to those lists and try it for, you know, four weeks, eight weeks. And many kids uh, will, uh, parents will notice improvement in their children. Yeah. Yeah. But not everybody. Yeah. I noticed uh, that I don't remember which ones, but some, some dyes are not, uh, they're banned in Europe. And I had just recently seen something in the news saying that, um, some certain sprinkles had to be taken off the market because they found that they had one of these banned food dyes on them in, in Britain. So it's, it's just interesting and curious as to, you know, if it's something we should be looking at. Um, so ADHD encompasses a variety of behavioral and learning uh, concerns, including attention deficits, hyperactivity, procrastination, and challenges with executive functioning. Do you find that the label of ADHD is helpful or hindering in getting the help um, that a child needs? You know, in, in my, my practice, I, I think uh, the, the diagnosis is helpful because I think it establishes um, 
my for my framework, a, a biologically brain-based illness. You know, this is different than oppositional behavior. It is not a behavior problem. My focus is it's genetically driven and it's brain-based, which means we need to treat it. Uh, and that could be nutritionally, could be with medicine, could be behavior management. So I think that the label does uh, help identify um, those kids or adults that do need treatment. Mm-hmm. Kind of a starting place. Um, but your practice is a unique one because I take it, do you still see patients? I currently don't have a private practice. I'm mostly now training doctors right. in some uh, what we call integrative and functional approaches mm-hmm. to treating ADHD. Um, but, you know, I had ADHD clinics for 20 years um, and just saw thousands of, of children and adults with ADHD. Mm-hmm. And what I was going to say is you primarily would always exhaust look seeking it all natural um, treatments first before jumping right to a prescription or a pharmaceutical. Is that correct? No, no, I think, um, you know, I use the term integrative medicine, so integrative psychiatrist. Um, I do help parents and, and families understand some of the nutritional or medical complications, but, um, I have no problem using medicines when indicated. And certainly for the younger kids, I'm very aggressive about, uh, ruling out food allergies and heavy metals and, and toxins. Um, but if there's a, uh, let's say an adolescent who's uh, struggling uh, in school, self-esteem, um, sometimes we would use a medicine while we also do some of the nutritional um, integrative therapies. I don't want someone to suffer for months and months um, after they've been suffering for much longer because they blame themselves for some of these um, deficits in their attention and impulse control. Right. And then they end up sometimes maybe having an additional diagnosis or um, side effect, which could be depression or low self-esteem. Absolutely. You know, to me, I call those the developmental consequences of ADHD the ADHD diagnosis is one around attention and executive function, impulse control, but um, the sense of failure, this being criticized, being told you're stupid or lazy, um, absolutely that can result in depression and and sometimes pretty significant uh, low self-esteem and depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Okay. So girls typically present with ADHD differently than boys. Can you please share the main differences and why that is? Uh, You know, uh, there are many uh, girls that that present with the same classic symptoms, attention and impulse and hyperactivity. But, you know, over the years, we've just seen so many uh, girls without the hyperactivity. So it's this inattention Um, and that doesn't get picked up early. They're often smart, so their grades are still good. What we've seen often is sometimes ADHD leads to eating disorders. There's a high correlation with ADHD in girls and and eating disorders because the impulse control is never addressed or treated. So the biggest difference I've seen is the lack of hyperactivity, which means they don't get picked up early and could be four or five years before um, somebody 
notices the the significant uh, struggles. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm doing a little investigating on my end in my family as well right now. Um, but after, especially after reading your book, it made a lot of things that uh, were um, our own practitioner is suggesting make sense to me. Right. Yeah. Um, so you've spent a great deal of your career educating clinicians, colleagues, uh, and patients on mental health and wellness. It's an honor to be inducted into the Orthomolecular Medicine Hall of Fame. Um, congratulations on this honor. Thank you. So what are the main differences between ADHD, atten- attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and ASD, autism spectrum disorder? And can these ever overlap? Sure. I mean, I think the um, the autism spectrum disorder kids usually have um, more more social deficits and often, you know, more sensory issues and a, a whole host of um, uh, symptoms that um, uh, unrelated to the ADHD. But we can see them overlap. So many kids with autism or Asperger's might have attention problems and could be diagnosed with ADHD as well. Mm. So these are different diagnoses that for some kids could overlap. Yeah, that they just pile them on. Yes. Can you please explain the importance of the gut-brain connection and what can get in the way of this connection in children? Sure. I mean, I think that um, over the past 10 years, there's been an explosion of research looking at the gut and uh, the gut-brain connection, and there's a direct link. Uh, there's uh, many uh, uh, neurotransmitters, um, most of the serotonin, uh, a lot of the dopamine and all these neurotransmitters in the brain are also in the gut. So we know there's a direct communication. For ADHD, we found two um, pretty common, particularly in younger kids, um, kind of what we call gut dysbiosis that can affect behavior. Mm-hmm. One is an overgrowth of uh, candida, the yeast. And the other is an overgrowth of a uh, overgrowth of a bacteria called Clostridia, which can result in chemicals that can affect behavior. Mm. And both of these can be tested for and treated if they're abnormal. Do you know what causes either of those? Do well, I mean, the most common is back to our refined sugar and junk food. So yeah, poor dietary habits, uh, high sugar diets can uh, directly affect what we call the microbiome, the bacteria in the gut, which is extensive. There's three or four pounds of bacteria in our gut. Holy cow. High sugar is one, but probably the most common is is antibiotic use. And when I first started practicing, every child with an earache would be given antibiotics. Now, pediatricians are a little more careful, but antibiotic use will kind of disrupt the this bacteria in our gut and sometimes cause the overgrowth of some of these other bacteria that are not helpful. Mm. Now, sugar and antibiotics are the most common. And then stress also has a direct effect on the gut bacteria. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get to that too. You said there was a, I, maybe it was one of the last chapters on mindfulness and that there's actually some some scientific research and studies that show 
um, that practicing mindfulness helps uh, with ADHD? Yes, it's really not intuitive to think of a hyperactive, um, you know, inattentive uh, child or adult that, that would benefit from uh, mindfulness. But uh, as we explore what mindfulness is, it, it doesn't mean you have to sit quietly and meditate. Mindfulness is just this um, kind of training of being in the present and being aware. So for ADHD, a lot of the mindfulness programs um, might be moving, walking, taking a walk in nature. Mm. Um, and uh, there's actually very good research that being able to help kids become more aware, develop some mindfulness skills will improve attention. Wow. Yes, it's something that um, we have talked about a lot on this uh, podcast, and I think everyone could benefit from more mindfulness, including myself and my family. Absolutely, yes. Um, So you also briefly mentioned um, the increase of tablets, phones, technology, you know, that our kids uh, deal with these days having an effect. What is your opinion of phones and digital devices as they relate to brain functioning in children and those with ADHD? Well, I think there's, um, you know, we're all aware of the dramatic increase in in screen time. And I think it's pretty clear that, um, you know, short attention span is what's kind of driven into our social media and our screens. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's the cause of ADHD, like some people do, and parents, re, you know, restricting and removing. I, I think it's just something that has to be monitored and understood. Our kids with ADHD, though, are much more prone to getting uh, overly focused because they can hyper-focus into some things, even though they're inattentive in other things. Mm. So I think the message is it, it doesn't cause ADHD, but it certainly can exacerbate the symptoms. So I think parents need to carefully just monitor the time and like for other ADHD behaviors, just a clear structure and guidelines is the most helpful. Right. Like making sure that they're taken away well before bedtime so that their brain and their body has a chance to prepare for for sleep. Yes, absolutely. Sleep is, is just so important for our mental health regardless of whether you have ADHD or not, but even more important because ADHD kids can slip into sleep disorders very easily. So um, that evening screen time can get sucked into two, three in the morning, uh, sneaking um, screens at night. So a night ritual without the screen is very important. Mm -hmm. If you could choose the top five foods that feed healthy brains and kids, what would they be? Um, I think the most important would be uh, protein. Um, You know, we know that uh, protein uh, provides those amino acids to help make those chemicals in the brain, the neurotransmitters to focus. So I think protein uh, certainly would be number one. And then if we went beyond that, probably fish and the omega-3 fatty acids, and then the kind of nuts and seeds that also have these healthy omega-3s. Um, fatty acids. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer in this uh, class of what we call phytochemicals called OPCs. Um, and these are found in uh, like blueberries and, and grapes. And so any of these colorful um, fruits and vegetables are also very important. 
Oh yeah, that's a good list there. Um, does it matter what source of protein? Uh, no, I'm, I'm concerned about a, a vegan um, diet mm -hmm. um, for kids with ADHD and adults, because I think um, oftentimes there's deficiency in zinc and B12 and sometimes protein. And those are all critical nutrients for the ADHD brain. So for a, uh, a vegan diet, it is challenging and supplementation I think is uh, critical. Um, vegetarians, if they're eating eggs and, and dairy usually uh, are much better able to get some of these nutrients like zinc. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where is the best place to get zinc? Um, I know oysters. Oysters are, are very high. Uh, animal products are where zinc is most bioavailable. So a, a pure vegan diet is deficient in zinc and, and someone would have to supplement. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly um, if for kids and trying to get through puberty where we have a higher need for zinc, very challenging and um, uh, very concerned as a mental health practitioner about vegan adolescents um, that are nutrient deficient leading to mental health challenges, not just mm. ADHD. Yeah, yeah. What are the different types of ADHD and, and how do they present? You know, I didn't even realize there were different types. Yeah, I mean, so I, I don't really use the classification. You know, I my motto and what I practice and preach is every child is different, every adult is different. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the, the family history and the genetics are important, but the, the list of symptoms are unique. And, and the nutritional... Um, treatment is unique. So I, I don't really uh, clinically utilize any of the subclasses of ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, I try to personalize treatment. You know, we all have a unique fingerprint and we all have a unique presentation, um, both in our kind of family, psychological, uh, as well as biological. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, what are the best tools to help kids with ADHD maintain their schedules? That one seems like a big one, um, and it can become very frustrating for mm, the, the child with ADHD and the adults um, working with the child or parenting the child. Sure. I mean, I, I think we all theory, theoretically know that this uh, structure is, is critically important and providing those schedules and that structure. And, and for kids with ADHD, the adults have to do that. But when we have a child who cannot follow through, right, the sustained attention is poor, the executive function is poor. I like the term persistence of effort, you know, so they just can't follow through. Then that's just screaming out to me that we need to help the biology of the brain. And that's where we would look at medication, or nutritional interventions, and then the structure that is provided by the adults or the teachers can be followed through. So I, I think trying to force a child into this uh, a structure just doesn't work. And if, if they can't do it, it's just telling us we need to do a better job helping support their uh, attention span. Oh, okay. Um, and how do you support their attention? Well, between, between supplements and besides supplements and nutrition and, and medication, are there other tools to help support their attention span? Maybe um, one I could guess is giving them breaks. 
Well, um, the nutritional, yeah, looking at the biology, this medicine, um, neurofeedback can also kind of help support attention. Um, but absolutely, uh, to me, it's not just breaks. It's, again, if we think of an individualized treatment model, we ask the child, how do they focus better? And it's just amazing. Some kids do better when they're standing up. Some kids do better when they're pacing. And some kids do better when they're doodling. And so the parents yell at them, stop doodling when you're trying to read. But guess what? They pay attention better when their hand, other hand is moving. Wow. Kids do better when they're rocking. And parents might say, stop moving. And, and but their brain, you know, actually focuses. Uh, chewing, you know, uh, we actually can pay attention better when we're chewing. That's why when you see little kids, you know, chewing on their sleeves and their uh, strings of their sweatshirt. Um, so sometimes gum might help them pay attention. And so we're really in music. People, parents scream, you know, shut your music off. And, you know, I can't pay attention with music going, but I know many ADHD kids and adults that will read and focus better with music. So it's really, again, individualizing and respecting what the child is sharing with you. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that one before that my daughter tells me that the music helps her while she's reading and I just don't get it. Right. I'm like, how can you, how can you, yeah. And that'll let her do it. Yeah. Um, are schools, do you believe that schools are becoming more aware of ADHD um, and how this can impact academic performance? You know, I, I think schools are, it's complicated. You know, many schools are not able to make the diagnosis. So they're sending, um, you know, a lot of kids out for, for testing. Um, I think absolutely they're more aware of it but it's challenging in terms of providing some of the support and structure that is always needed. Mm -hmm. I guess the challenge is, you know, talking to families around the country, there's going to be one school district or one school system that does an incredible job with a child and the next school district just ignores the ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, testing is kind of scary. I think for some, well, maybe I have a little bit of an awareness um, because not every psychiatrist you go to is going to be, you know, as open-minded and thoughtful as you, in my opinion. Um, they maybe have a little reputation of being pill pushers. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely concerned. Uh, it's not just in the United States, it's globally, you know, the amount of medicines um, for depression and ADHD and the, yeah, the sad reality is too much of psychiatry is just medication management without looking at any underlying uh, nutritional or metabolic problems. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy that this field of integrated functional medicine is growing. Yeah. So I think there are clinical nurse specialists, clinical nurse practitioners, and psychiatrists who are more open. And I think uh, parents... Um, can can look for those uh, individuals that will go beyond just prescribing a uh, amphetamine. Mm -hmm. And how, okay, so how do you suggest that people do that? I know you have a list of doctors that or practitioners that you've trained or have gone through some of your, some type of training with you. Um, I, I looked at the list. I don't 
recall how many there are on there, but there might not be someone near every single person listening here. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, on psychiatryredefined.org, there is a, um, a provider list of people that um, we've been training. And uh, I think many of those people might uh, know other individuals. Mm-hmm. And there's, um, you know, if you're just looking at integrative and functional medicine, I think there is a, a growing list. And we're hoping uh, next year to, to set up a um, uh, telehealth uh, ADHD clinic with some of the um, uh, doctors who've um, kind of uh, went through our training program. So we should have information about that uh, coming up soon because there's just a, a tremendous need for more clinicians to look beyond a pure medication model. Yeah, yeah. I remember I was still a teenager when I was diagnosed. I had all sorts of things going on, <laughs> um, epilepsy and then depression. And then eventually I said I couldn't focus and a nice neurologist, I, I did like her, said I could have Adderall. Um, and it, it did help me with, um, well, I think it was my first year of college. It did help, but, you know, it came with side effects. You know, I would just not eat. Um, it affected sleep. Um, and I think it was addicting. So it always scared me. But one scary thing that I noticed is that I'm, I've moved many times. And if I ever wanted it, I could go to, you know, find a psychiatrist who would prescribe that or, or the antidepressants or anything um, that I had previously been on. Um, they really didn't think twice about that. That was just like, okay, that works for you. Okay. No problem. <laughs> yes. That's why um you know, our program is called Psychiatry Redefined because we have to shift that model from just treating symptoms with medicine um, to a model where we look at underlying causes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all we do is train psychiatrists how to prescribe them, but stopping the medicines, um, particularly the antidepressants, can be challenging with withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. And that's not part of uh, training for any psychiatrist. Yeah. Yeah, I just uh, stopped my antidepressants after uh, 20 years, um, just in the last year. Okay. <laughs> and I had worked with many people to help me over the years lower it and eventually eventually be able to be off of those. But it, I, I fully understand how that can just be you're on it. And then how, how long are you on it? Um, I know that some medication, I don't know anything about how, um, Adderall affects the gut or, um, or Ritalin, but I, I know that SSRIs should only be taken for so long before they start to, um, thin the lining of the gut. I have heard. Uh, you know, the SSRIs have, you know, impact everywhere. Uh, again, the gut, um, 80, 90% of all the serotonin receptors are in the gut and these medications change the metabolism and the receptors for serotonin, both in the brain and the gut. So there are a lot of complications and for some, not everyone, uh, withdrawal and getting off these medicines uh, can take a lot of time and, and, and really be challenging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do feel for people though. I do want to say that I, I think there is a time and a place for for the medications, um, for support. Yes. And, and that's why our model, you know, is an integrative model. Yeah. So 
Uh, we, we train doctors on, on how to use medicine um, and we have a prescription pad. It's just um, sad that there are doctors who only do supplements and there are doctors who only do meds. And it really, um, the integrative model to me is the only one that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kids, let's get back to kids. Kids with ADHD can have a hard time making friends. Um, due to less awareness of social cues and less maturity than their friends, um, maybe less impulse control. Uh, when we see kids who are ostracized or bullied, can ADHD be at the root? Uh, yes, uh, often. But that is another argument for making sure we make the diagnosis and we treat these kids because, you know, the symptoms that you describe, you know, uh, poor uh, Social, not picking up social cues, impulse control, interrupting, uh, not paying attention to the conversation and maybe saying something silly because you didn't hear what other people said. Those are those biological symptoms of ADHD that a lot of these kids can't control. And if we diagnose this and treat it, so a treated individual would be able to focus, would be able to make eye contact, would be able to pick up social cues and... Um, we see it all the time and, and improve social relationships. So that's kind of why I'm, um, it's, it's, we, we do have social skills group and we can help uh, many of these kids learn a better social skills, but treating the underlying biology with either nutrition and or medicine is really um, part of that equation. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of, you know, step-by-step treating, um, in your book, Finally Focused, you lay it out. You, you, you're you speaking mainly to parents, I, I assume, right? And you're laying out step-by-step uh, things to try and exhaust in each chapter, at the end of each chapter. How'd you write the book? And tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, again, I, I was running uh, ADHD clinics since the 1990s. And um, treating kids with many modalities from neurofeedback to nutrition, meds, and social skills groups, and, um, and, and was providing the information in this book, but I, there wasn't a lot of the research. So I didn't feel comfortable putting the information out as just my clinical experience. Mm-hmm. As the research started accumulating over the last 20 years, it just made sense that I could say that, um, you know, zinc is helpful for ADHD because I had 20 research articles. So the the book um, was really based on the fact that research caught up with clinical experience that many of us have been doing for 30, 40 years, mm-hmm. wanted to get it out to parents to be able to give them alternatives to a purely medication model. Yeah. Um, I appreciated in the book, and I wanted to point out to anyone listening that you even had... Um, specific labs that you recommended um, in, you know, if someone saw certain symptoms and signs and symptoms, you would say what laboratory it was and what to order. And um, it, it helps a lot um, because many parents aren't sure where to start. Yeah, no, it's challenging. And um, I think, you know, there are many of my colleagues, doctors who've read this book, even though it was written for parents and learned Mm -hmm. about nutrition, ADHD. But I think it was written for parents to be able to utilize some of the programs 
But the best results is, as you described, looking at some of this testing so you can really personalize a treatment program and understand if there's a you know, high copper, understand if there's you know, low magnesium. And that really just personalizes the treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I was going to be done with that area, but um, speaking of copper, you you talked about in your book um, an imbalance, like a, it's like a seesaw, uh, copper and zinc between those two, it can be. And um, yes. I thought there was more often you saw high copper, I, I thought you wrote about more often high copper and low zinc, but I just got a test back for my own um, child and hers showed that she needs copper, not that she needs zinc. Can can you explain that or do you see that very often? Sure. Yeah, we do see it. So, I mean, copper is, um, you know, in most of our pipes. So our water supply uh, gets um, contaminated with copper and done studies in elementary schools across the country. And many have elevated uh, lead as well as copper. So copper is more likely to be elevated. Okay. And um, but we do see low copper. Uh, I see it more in in women. I see it more in adults than kids. And usually the symptoms could be like apathy and depression versus attention. And I think the real important question is what what form of testing was the low copper picked up on? Mm. I don't know that off the top of my head. (laughs) Yeah, so if it was just blood, um, to me, that single blood test is not the most helpful to assess for copper. Mm. So we look at hair testing, hair levels, which will- She did that too. (laughs) Yeah, so if it's low in the hair and the blood, then absolutely copper, um, because you need copper to make the neurotransmitters, dopamine and norepinephrine that that help you pay attention. Oh. So clearly um, for individuals with low copper, they'll feel better with copper supplementation. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Stepping away from ADHD for a moment, did you treat many patients with, I assume, with bipolar disorder or uh, oppositional defiant disorder, as they call it now? Yes. I mean, I think um, the oppositional defiant disorder, you know, I see as a behavioral problem and behavioral treatment and parent training is the most important. But the kind of bipolar disorder or mood dysregulation or now called disruptive mood disorder. Um, These are, I believe, biologically driven. These kids can't control their impulses. These kids can't control their moods. And, um, you know, for the 30 years, I've always worked in a hospital. So I've seen very sick kids that can't function at home. And I've always had a private practice and seen healthier kids. So, yeah, we've seen the gamut of kind of disruptive behavior disorders. And my treatment model oftentimes, and there's a chapter in the book, is looking at the uh, nutritional supplement lithium for some right. of these um, disruptive behaviors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how is lithium? Some people might hear that um, there is a difference between the supplement lithium, the low dose, right? And then the prescription lithium, right? Yes. Yeah, lithium is um, it's a natural mineral. You know, it's in the periodic table for any chemist. It's in our soil, it's in our water, and it's critical, um, you know, for brain function. But that's a mineral. But what we've done 
uh, we've kind of made it into an incredibly useful in technology. So uh, lithium batteries and electric cars, airplanes. I mean, lithium is critical for our uh, technology world. But then we've um, also made it into a medication. And starting um, you know, in the 50s and 60s, lithium carbonate as a prescription metal, a, a prescription drug at much higher doses is the treatment for bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. So what we use mostly in our practice is just nutritional lithium, the amount that, that many people get in their water supply or in their food supply. We've just found some kids, particularly those with uh, irritability, um, impulse control problems, tend to do better with higher amounts of this nutritional lithium. Do you know why? Do you have any suspicions as to why more people are becoming deficient in lithium? I had heard something about it not being in the soil anymore in certain areas and and in some areas of the country, there's a higher level of it in the soil. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it varies. I mean, lithium has been around for billions of years. It's one of the first three elements uh, in in the Big Bang. And so when the earth was formed, um, lithium was in the soil. So depending on where you live, and even within a state, some of the early studies were done in Texas. So in one part of Texas, lithium in the drinking water was high or normal, and another part of Texas, it was very low. Mm -hmm. So it does vary, and it seeps into the water. And what has been studied across the globe is the amount of lithium in your drinking water can predict psychiatric illness. And and the most traumatic, it has been shown to predict suicide, suicide completion. So you're absolutely right. Depending on where you live is how much lithium you get. So one variable is some people are just in a low lithium area. But I also believe uh, there's a kind of genetics that some people just have a higher need for um, more lithium. Mm -hmm, Yeah. How can our audience find out more about you and your work, Dr. Greenblatt? Well, I, I mean, the book, um, it Finally Focused, is available, and my website is jamesgreenblattmd.com, and then we have uh, our educational program is geared towards clinicians, but many parents enjoy some of the courses. That's psychiatryredefined.org. Mm-hmm. Um, you have several books. Uh, would you like to share any about, about any of the other ones? Sure. We just done uh, this week, the uh, book on anorexia nervosa just came out, Answers mm-hmm. to Anorexia. But we have books on ADHD, depression, uh, binge eating disorder, and um, the Alzheimer's disorder. Mm-hmm. And they're based on an integrative functional medicine model where we haven't eliminated the need for prescription medications, but just kind of urge caution and more thoughtful use of medicines with um, particularly children struggling with mental health issues. Oh, I I really appreciate that. Thank you for putting that information out in the world. Um, I have to ask, what had you, you know, you went to school, became a psychiatrist. At what point did you start? Because you didn't learn this in your schooling, I'm sure. At what point did you start realizing or deciding that you needed to look more into testing and and deficiencies? Yeah, I was kind of fortunate, lucky. I actually went to medical school. Um, you know, 
uh, interested in nutrition. And uh, at the time, I was actually teaching yoga and very involved in kind of the, uh, you know, com- it was at the time called complementary and alternative medicine. What happened, uh, you know, is I got sucked into the medical model for nine years. And it was only when I went back out in practice um, that I kind of got back to why I went to medical school, which was really help people understand the role of nutrition and lifestyle mm. in mental health. Yeah. So I had to unlearn a lot of what I learned in medical school. Right, right. Well, I appreciate you taking it and integrating it because I think there's a need for both, as you say, in our modern society and in taking the best of everything that we, our scientists, have figured out thus far, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share with the Brain Possible community today to be complete? Well, uh, just to, to summarize what I shared a couple of times, but this concept of, um, you know, individuality and, and everyone's different. And if we can appreciate that in, in our children and in our families and certainly those struggling with mental health, we, we just, um, one, can have more empathy and stop blaming uh, each other and two, develop these individual treatment plans. So, you know, genetics matter and we're kind of all different. And part of my work is looking at the difference in the biology, uh, but clearly there's also a difference in the psychology and, and how we, you know, relate to each other. But if we can appreciate that, then I think um, we can develop these treatment programs to make kids with ADHD feel successful. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of them go on to be very successful. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Again, those skills, um, you know, of impulsivity usually are related to passion and creativity um, and can hyper-focus on things they're interested in. So ADHD is, um, is, is not a deficit except for sitting in a classroom with a subject <laughs> you don't like, but exactly. in the real world, um, ADHD, um, you know, particularly entrepreneurs and uh, people finding their strengths and what they like, it does not have to feel like a disability at all. Right. It can be uh, entrepreneurs. That's it. Very um, successful people and uh, who, uh, who are comfortable being impulsive. <laughs> right. But, but untreated, you know, this is probably an important message as well. I mean, untreated ADHD you know, relationship problems, financial problems, job problems, you know, even car accidents. So someone that's struggling with, you know, inattention and impulsivity um, and executive function uh, difficulties could struggle um, in our society. So that's why treatment is so important. Yeah. Yeah. Left untreated, um, things can spiral quite a bit, right? Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know that your time is valuable and I appreciate you spending it here with me today. Appreciate it, Emily, and I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. <laughs> thank you. I hope that you enjoyed our conversation today and that you learned something new. Do you have a question for Dr. Greenblatt? Do you have your own story to share about using integrative medicine for your child's mental health condition? We would love to hear from you. Let us know how we can be useful in your journey. Email us at info at thebrainpossible.com. Be sure to subscribe, follow, and share our podcast if that feels true for you. 
You may also consider visiting our website for more information on stories, therapies, and products that we think that you will love and may help you in your healing journey. As always, thank you for spending your precious time with us at The Brain Possible. See you next week and be well.